So, um, we've been talking about this series. We've been in this series called Transform. We've been talking about real and lasting change. And what's come along with this series is the idea that we need to have some really uh, tough conversations with ourselves, with other people, that we have to dig deep, that we have to look introspectively. And when we do that, that's not always neat and clean and easy to do. That involves looking at some of the hard things, whether it's things that have happened in our past or things that are going on right now, questions that we have about God. And while we can often come into church and we can do the high praise during praise and worship and sing songs that are filled with jubilation, the truth is a lot of scripture captures the opposite of that lament and crying out and not knowing what God is going to do or how God is going to answer a prayer. Um, and one of the best places where we see that kind of vulnerability that we want to achieve in this series is in the Psalms. So I'm really excited that we have our sister Kyra here, whoop, whoop. <laughs> that we have our sister Kyra here who's going to share from us from one particular Psalm, Psalm 22. So would you listen to her as she speaks? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls, like lions they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and have left me for dead. And yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. Oh, Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. I will 
proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All those who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. I'm not sure what I could possibly add to that. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, let some word that is heard be yours. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, so when I was preparing for this message, I told my wife, Lindsay, that there was going to be a little spoken word piece before the message, and she was like, by you? <laughs> now, that's just disrespectful. You, you promised to love and to honor, for better, for worse. No, not by me. But if I want to do a spoken word piece, I will. Um, indulge me for 10 seconds of silence. I'll time it. You can just relax. Just close your eyes for 10 seconds of silence. Okay. In that time, statistically speaking, one American died. Uh, about every 10 seconds, somebody in our country dies. It amounts to a few thousand people every day, um, almost three million people a year, and 100% uh, of us, eventually. Now, don't get nervous. This is not a heaven or hell talk. Um, I don't even really want to talk about the afterlife. I want to talk about this life and a real life that is actually hidden in plain sight in this life, but few people find it because to discover it, you need to know something about death. And death is one of those things that really affects our experience in this life because it is one of the few things that unites all of us, Christian or not, white, black, male, female, however you identify, geniuses, mentally retarded people, rich, poor, whatever language you speak, documented, undocumented, prisoners on death row, the police and judges that caught and tried them, every single one of us has an inevitable date with death. No exceptions. And because it's so universal and for many people so scary and uncomfortable and there's so much confusion and, and fear and doubt surrounding death, we seldom think about what that means, but it means some really big things for our lives. And one of the things that it means about our life now is that a moment is coming when each and every single one of us will suffer a complete and total loss of power and control. If you died right now, 
You could never say another word to change her mind. Uh, the things on your to-do list, your deadlines, that client you haven't quite sealed, the red badge on your email, your Facebook, these things would never get done. And they would seem almost laughably unimportant. Um, you would not care about impressing anybody. Any dreams or hopes you have for this life would be gone. Anything that you hope to accomplish with this life would be gone. Uh, parents, you would have to trust that God would bring somebody else into your kids' lives to teach them because you would not teach them one more thing. You would completely and totally lose all power and control. And this is the inevitable destiny of every man, woman, and child who has ever drawn breath. A moment is coming when I will finally, completely and totally lose all power and control over this life. And a moment is coming when you will completely and totally lose all power and control over this life. Uh, I turned 40 about two months ago. Uh, can you tell? When I was prepping this message, I was like, this whole thing sounds like a midlife crisis, this whole <laughs> message. I promise you I have no intention of getting a red convertible or trading my wife in for a younger woman or, or starting to wear track suits or any of that stuff. I might, I might get some track suits, I'm not going to lie. But as cliche as it sounds, I have found myself thinking about death. I have found myself thinking about where this whole thing is going. Because to be alive means that death is coming. Now, enter into that crazy experience the strangest man who has ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. By all accounts, he voluntarily gave up all power and control while he was still alive. So this is, this is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he decides to come into his creation. He could have come as a dragon. He could have breathed fire and stomped on evil. He could have come as a king with a big square beard and an iron scepter and swept away sin with a snarl. But instead, he chose to become the most powerless, vulnerable human that exists, a newborn baby, and he entrusted his care to a 14-year-old girl. And then as Jesus uh, grew, he, he didn't manage his image. You know, he would perform a miracle and tell people, don't tell anybody that I'm the one that did this. He would perform a miracle and the crowds would start forming, and instead of taking the opportunity to get on a soapbox, he would run off so that the crowd wouldn't see him. You had to drag his identity out of him. He, most of the time, he would just say, well, who do you say that I am? He, he did not try to manage his image. He did not try to manage his platform. There's a moment in the Gospels when it says, Jesus realized that God the Father had put everything under his feet. So Jesus realizes everything in the universe is under my authority. I have power and control over all things. And the next thing he does is he gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, gets on his hands and knees, and washes his disciples' feet. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, just let him do it. When he was in the garden praying the night before he was killed and they came to arrest him, there's a moment in the Gospels where it says, Jesus spoke and at his word the soldiers all fell back at the power of his word. And then he relaxed and surrendered and let them arrest him and take him off. It was as if Jesus was saying, like, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're taking me. No, I'm laying this down. At his trial, he did not speak. Think about this. He did not say a word at his trial. This was a trial for a capital offense 
that bore the punishment of the most painful mode of execution that existed at that point in history and maybe ever, crucifixion, from which we get the word excruciating. And he did not say a word. It was as if Jesus was like, do whatever you're going to do. And this man, the man who voluntarily relinquished all power and control, this is the one man in history who, when death came knocking, came back to life. This man who laid down all power and control is the one man in history for death could not keep him down. And this is what he taught in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So as it turns out, um, just getting older isn't enough to make you want to lose your life, to set your own eye down, your own ego down, um, your own part of yourself that's focused on you down. At least it wasn't for me. Uh, it took something more. To get to the place where I was willing to set my life aside and have a, a hope at getting this real life that Jesus was talking about, God had to put me through some very, very difficult experiences that we'll call the wall. The ancients called it the dark night of the soul. And everyone that follows after Jesus will come to the wall. Not everybody will go through the wall. Some people turn back, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But everybody who follows Jesus eventually will come to the wall. For me, it looked like this. Over the last decade or so, God took me through three very difficult seasons. Together, they conspired to knock me off of my center and even knock me out of orbit, uh, but brought me to a, a point in my faith and in my relationship with Him that I never would have even known to hope for before. I, didn't even, I wouldn't have even understood that it existed. God was trying to give me something that I didn't even know to ask for, and I wouldn't have wanted if I did know to ask for it. The first season happened when Lindsay and I first moved to New York City about a decade ago now. I took a job teaching math uh, at a middle school about 10 blocks from here, and uh, it turned out to be a nightmarish situation. It was a new school in its third year, and for every year for those third years, it was on the state's persistently dangerous list. And the year that I, my first year teaching, the, uh, the year that I was teaching there, it had the highest rate of student injuries per capita in New York City public the largest public school system the world has ever known. It was just a nightmarish situation. I hope to talk a little bit more about my experience um, teaching in Harlem when we get to the Gospel and Race series in spring, because I'm going to be giving the message about white privilege, and some of the things that I learned and saw there will really apply to that uh, message. But for today, what I want you to know is that God um, totally redefined what I thought mattered through that experience. Everything that I thought was significant got dismantled, and he changed what I thought about where he was at work in the world. The second season came when Lindsay and I started to try to have kids. I've always dreamed of being a dad. I really always wanted to be a dad. When she called me at work with that positive pregnancy test, it was like Christmas morning. I was so excited. Uh, when I saw that little pitter-patter heartbeat on the sonogram, it took my breath away. But I'll also never forget the moment when uh, Lindsay started to bleed, and we didn't know what was going on, and I'll never forget the visits to the doctor, and I'll never forget losing that first baby to miscarriage. We got pregnant again, 
and um, lost the second baby to miscarriage. And um, then we had a third miscarriage, and we had a fourth miscarriage. This was years of disillusionment, suffering, wandering in a, a fog where God felt distant and clearly indifferent. Maybe I'll get to talk a little bit more about that sometime if I ever teach about suffering, um, but for today, I, I just want to say it, it, it knocked me off my center. It, it put me in a place where I had to choose what I believed about God. There was no reason to feel any certain type of way about God. The third season happened a couple of years ago when I lost my job. Um, I was actually working on a team to plant a church um, here in the city, and uh, there wasn't any drama or no, it wasn't anybody's fault. The church just didn't go the way we hoped it did. It didn't grow the way we expected it to grow, and we had to make some really big cuts, and the board decided to cut me loose. And I found myself unemployed for the first time since I was a teenager, and I had a two-year-old and a two-month-old, but there was a deeper spiritual confusion going on because I had joined that team to plant that church in response to the clearest call from God I've ever had about anything in my life and thought that I had this long-term commitment. I thought I had another like 10 years of my life mapped out, and suddenly it was like someone cut the rope to the anchor, and I was just floating around on the ocean. I really did not know what he wanted me to do or where I was supposed to go. That knocked me out of my orbit. And those three seasons kind of conspired to um, send me on a journey inward that I never would have chosen for myself and ultimately discover a life and a peace that I um, never would have discovered for myself. What I want you to hear, though, is I wouldn't have chosen this and I couldn't have chosen it if I wanted to choose it. And that's what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about being transformed. We're not talking about being improved. We're talking about being changed in ways that we cannot do for ourselves, truly changed from the inside out by Jesus. And there are certain things that Jesus cannot give you or that he cannot change in you without taking you through the wall. So there are um, sort of recognized stages of faith, um, and this comes from Pete Scazzaro's excellent book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which uh, we've borrowed liberally from for this series. And he kind of outlines the stages of faith, and I'd like to share them with you and the role that the wall plays in the stages of faith. And most of you who are following Jesus, you'll be able to see exactly where you are, what stage you're in, almost instantly. It's very easy to kind of put yourself there. And, but I do want to be clear, these are not like the higher stages are better. There's no judgment. These are just necessary stages you have to go through. You can't skip them. It's not like you can work harder and advance to the next stage. You have to not learn what you're supposed to learn in that stage, but be changed in the way God needs to change you in that stage. So the first stage, stage one, is a life-changing awareness of Jesus. This is where you realize he is real and you place your faith in him. This was me reading the Bible as if for the first time and the words were jumping off the page and I started to pray experimentally. Now this is almost 20 years ago, being baptized, and I changed. Some of you are there. You, you were baptized this year or you're just starting to believe this and thinking about that decision, and you're changing. Your friends think it's a little weird. You're not perfect. It's up and down. Some days you're a hot mess, but you're different. You... you you, you're, there's been this life-changing awareness. Stage two is discipleship. It's learning. You dig in. You really start to learn who God is, what he's about. You learn some doctrine. You learn how, how to, new ways to act, new ways to think, new ways to feel. Stage three is the active life, serving. 
Uh, in stage three, you kind of know who you are. You know what your spiritual gifts are. You know the role God intends for you to play. Now, that's a lifelong journey. I'm not saying you know everything he's going to do through your life, but like you know what you do, you know what you don't do. And it may be something that uh, other people would seem really small, but you know this is what I do. This is what God has me to do, and you're doing it. You're actively serving, big or small, public or private. You are engaged and actively serving. And if you are in that stage, at some point, you are going to hit a wall. Because stage four, the journey inward, stage five, the journey outward, and stage six, being transformed into love, I don't know if I'd say you can't get to those stages without going through the wall, but I don't think any of us would ever choose to go through those stages without going through the wall. We just wouldn't. It's kind of like the addict who will not go through the hard work and the pain to get to freedom until he or she hits rock bottom. We are all hopelessly addicted to power and control, and we just will not, I will not go through the hard work and the pain of letting go of my false ideas about power and control without going through this difficult experience called the wall, what the ancients called the dark night of the soul. So what is that? Okay, so the wall is a time in your life, or some kind of major life event. It could be job loss, death of somebody, a prayer that you really needed answered that just bounces back from the heavens or echoes off into nowhere, that knocks you off your center. It, 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 your expectations of God are not met. You were disappointed by God. It could be a really big major thing. It normally is. But it also could be something that would seem small to other people, but for whatever reason where you are, it just... That's the thing that makes you disillusioned. And it is a season of life where God feels cold and distant, uncaring. You're confused. You're disillusioned. You're not sure what you believe or how you believe it or whether you believe it. Spiritual disciplines that used to give you life now feel like a chore, and um, you, don't, you don't feel close to God. You don't see signs that He's real. It feels like He's turned His back on you. It's a dreadful time. It's a very painful season to be in especially if you're coming out of a season where God felt really close and he was answering your prayers and he was giving you little loving signs all the time that he was real and that he saw you. When you go through the wall, it's extremely painful. And so many people don't go through it. Many people, anyone who follows Jesus comes to it, but many people don't go through it. It's too painful. They trade it for a kind of a pretend religion a pretend relationship with Jesus because it's, it's too hard to go through and be real about how, what's really going on, what you really feel about this thing with Jesus. And that's a tragedy because on the other side of the wall lies phase stage four, stage five, and ultimately our destiny to be transformed into love. This is our destiny, not to learn more about God, not to learn more about love, not even to become more loving, but to be transformed into love, to be changed into the image of Jesus who is God, who is love. And there is a real life hidden in plain sight waiting for those willing to go through this death. But why? Why would God have to do this? Why would he have to bring us through the wall? I really want to talk about this because if you're on the front side of the wall, it's coming at some point. If you're in the middle of it right now, I hope I can give you a little strength. If you hit it and, and decided not to go through it and bounced back off of it, or if you went through it, uh, maybe I can give you a little um, uh, clarity about the gift God was trying to give you through the wall. So wh why, would he, why would he do this? Well, we all have expectations of God that are too small. 
And God wants to give us something much bigger than even our wildest imaginations. Our, our, our most daring dreams and hopes about what could be coming for us are way too small for what God actually intends to give us because He actually intends to give us Himself. Not ideas about Himself, but Himself, His real self. And our expectations are too small, they're too limited. And the only way God can break us open so that He can give us His full self is to not meet our expectations. He must disappoint us. And I need to be changed. You need to be changed in ways that simply we will not choose for ourselves. Just like the addict hitting rock bottom, we will not choose this for ourselves. He kind of has to take us through it. It is uh, a severe mercy. It's a bitter pill, but it cures. It's a dark valley, but there's light on the other side of it. And if you will submit to God taking you through the wall, there is a real life waiting on the other side of this thing. Uh, but it's a very difficult thing, and some of you um, might be there uh, right now, but what God is trying to do, as unpleasant as the wall is, is uh, break us of our addiction to control the wrong things and help us to understand what we can control and what we cannot or should not control. Uh, now, here are the symptoms of trying to control the wrong things. When I'm trying to control the wrong things, here's the symptoms in my life. One, worry. In fact, I might say a great definition for worry is trying to control things you cannot or should not control. That's what worry is. Uh, two, anger or irritation, irritability. Uh, now, to be fair, there is healthy anger. There is righteous anger. When Jesus took the whip into the temple, it was holy, righteous anger. But I'd say maybe 5% of my anger is righteous anger. 95% of my anger is things didn't go the way I want them to go. My expectations were not met. Things didn't go the way that I hoped them to go. And my irritability is a sign that I'm trying to control things that I cannot or should not control. Uh, lastly, how you deal with interruptions. That really shows you where you're at on the my control versus God's control spectrum. Because lots of times in life, interruptions are God's appointments for us. And how I feel about them or how you feel about them says something profound about how you view your life, your time, your schedule, and your agenda. So what can we control then and what can we not or should not try to control? Well, here are the things that you cannot control or should not control, and it's pretty broad categories. Watch this. Everything that happens to you, you cannot control. Now, I'm not saying, you know, don't set aside money for a rainy day. You can mitigate risk. We can be wise. But can you control the rainy day, how hard it rains or when it comes? I'm talking about what you can control. You cannot control everything that happens to you. Here's the other big, broad category. You cannot control anybody. You cannot control what they think what they feel, what they say, or what they do. So then, what can you control? What should you control? You. You have control over what you choose to believe, regardless of what circumstances look like. You have control over how you choose to respond to the things that happen to you that are outside of your control. 
You have control over the attitude that you choose. You have control over what you say and what you do. And what the wall is about is trying to get us to a place where we are choosing to control the things we really do control and choosing not to control the things that we cannot or should not control. This is not something that we will choose for ourselves normally. It's something that has to be done to us. Now, I'm not saying that we can't change things. There are things in the world that need to be changed that we at least need to try to change. This is not fatalism. I'm talking about control. And this is a good moment to bring up a very famous prayer, now that I've already introduced the metaphor of addiction and recovery, um, because this prayer was popularized by the 12-step programs, and it's very appropriate here of thinking about the difference between change and control. It goes like this. You've heard this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Now, that was popularized by the 12-step programs, but it was actually originally written by a theologian named Richard Niebuhr, and there's a second verse that I had not heard, and maybe you have not heard. It goes like this. Living one day at a time, you know, give us this day our daily bread, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Now, the way that Jesus taught us to pray is even better. Uh, you definitely heard this. This is from Matthew 6. It says, this then is how you should pray. Jesus' disciples asked him, how should we pray? Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, there is something that is conspicuously absent from this prayer that Jesus gave us that tends to dominate my own prayers and most of our prayers. And there's something that is conspicuously present in this prayer that Jesus gave us that tends to kind of not even make its way into most of my prayers. So here's what's missing. Pay attention to the pronouns in the prayer that Jesus taught. Our, your, we, us. What's missing there? I, me. Now, it's not wrong to pray I and me. Read the Psalms. I and me is in there. Jesus himself, when he went through his own wall, his own dark night, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not wrong to pray I and me. But when they asked Jesus how to pray, he taught this prayer, I, or we, our, us, your. What I want to say to you is that I hope you know that this is a family faith. This is a community faith. This is not about me and God. This is not about you and God. It's about more than that. It is about you and God, but I hope you know it's about more than just you and God. And that's really important when you're thinking about the wall because there were times when it was all I could do just to come, just to be with other people who believed. It works the same way as why I, I take Kung Fu class to stay in shape. I do not have the self-discipline to do all the push-ups that I do when there's a small Chinese man standing over me with a stick. I'm just being real. All I have to do is get myself to Kung Fu class, and I do way more intense workouts than I would ever do on my own. And there were times when um, I, I would get to church, and I could not care about it. I could not summon a, a, a warm thought towards God. I could not 
summon a heartfelt prayer. I, I could not care about the poor. I could not care about the dude that doesn't know Jesus. I just, I couldn't mean the words that I was singing. And what I really needed was for other people to care for me, for other people to believe even for me. And it's possible that some of you are there right now. And if you're there, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope you feel free to be real. There's also something that's there in that prayer that is conspicuously absent from most of my prayers, and that's the first half of the conversation where, where Jesus says um, it's all about who God is and God's will. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. There's no one like you. May your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If you look in the Bible, it's half of the conversation is about God, who he is, and what his will is. My prayers are not normally like that. But if you get that right, and to be clear, praying that way is losing your life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. If you want to know what that is, it's genuinely and sincerely praying. Even though I, I think I know what seems best to me, and even though it might mean it would be painful to me or uncomfortable to me, I genuinely believe you know better, and I want your will to be done. I've now gotten to a place, God, where I believe you, I trust you, I know you're better than me, you want better things for all of us even than I would want if I were God, and so I surrender to you. I want your will to be done. Help me to do my part in your will. That is dying to self. That is losing your life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. And when you get that part right, it even changes the second half of the prayer, the give us this day our daily bread. Uh, it changes it from God, give me what I want, there's nothing wrong with praying for what you want. God loves you. You're his daughter, his son. Pray for what you want. He loves to give us what we want. But it changes it from God, give me what I want to God, give me what I need to do what you want. And I can always tell where I'm at uh, when I'm walking into school. I teach fifth grade math. Um, when I'm walking into the school, how I'm praying. I can always tell where I'm at on the my will versus God will spectrum. On the days when I'm off and I'm on the my will side of the spectrum, my prayers sound like this. Oh, God, just help these kids behave so I can get through this day. And um, if so-and-so could be absent, that really wouldn't be a bad thing. When I'm on the God's will end of the spectrum, it's like, God, I know that you want these kids to learn even more than I want these kids to learn. So, Help me to teach them. Help me to explain it well. God, I know that you want my classroom to be orderly, safe, and positive even more than I want my classroom to be that way. God, give me the wisdom to lead my kids well. God, I know that you want to develop the character of these young men and women even more than I do. So help me. Give me what I need to confront, to challenge, to discipline, to teach, to inspire and encourage them to be what you want them to be. So when you get that first part right, it even changes the way you pray the give us this day our daily bread. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for what you want. God, God loves you. But I cannot make any promises about how he will respond to those prayers because we do not have control. That's him. He is in control of how he responds to those prayers. But what I can promise you is what he has promised us, and that is that he will always give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And there is a real life hidden in plain sight. His name is Jesus. Uh, I had an experience that kind of brought this fresh back to me the other day. I was like frantically trying to get stuff at work, 
done so I could run out. I had like 20 minutes to get to the bodega and get a sandwich so I didn't get hangry the second half of the day. And I'm like running out of the front, uh, front door and one of my fifth grade classes is coming back from recess and I see one of my students, Henry, and his face is so wet with sweat and tears and snot bubbles that I thought he got hit in the face by a water balloon. Um, now, you need to, under to understand the story. You need to know that Henry is on the spectrum. Um, he's an autistic kid. He, he, he has typical, like, autistic behaviors. He doesn't understand social circumstances. He can't figure out whether a situation is an emergency or a small thing. So, for example, like, if he was in this room right now and Henry broke the tip off of his pencil, he would get up and come up on stage and stand right in front of me and have sort of a frantic conversation about needing to get the pencil sharpened right here while I was teaching. He just he can't compute those kind of social cues. I really enjoy this kid. I've learned to really love this kid, but he is a funny kid. He's coming back from recess, and he is in full-out Hulk mode because once I get him to actually, you know, through the sobbing, tell me what's bothering him, Francis G. from Class 503 said Christmas isn't real. And I know, I know. I deal with this a lot, so I'm allowed to, like, laugh at it a little bit. Um, and I'm, so I'm talking, I've talked to him off the ledge a bunch of times. So I'm talking to him, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what's going on here, and he's full-out hawk mode, and he said, Christmas isn't real, and it's my favorite holiday, and I'm not going to get presents, and I'm like, I need to stop this line of thinking. So I just, like, I jump in, and I'm just like, well, first off, first off, Henry, Christmas is as real as it gets. So let's just get that out right now. And that kind of stopped him for a second. Now, if we're talking about Santa, well, you need to know that he's black. That's, let's just get that out right now. That's why you hardly ever see the black Santa. All the malls are filled with white imposters. You, if you want to meet the real Santa, you actually you have to come to Harlem. He doesn't live in the North Pole. He lives north of Central Park. That's where the real Santa is. These are the things that I say inside my head to like keep myself entertained. No, what I really said to him was, I, I was like, Henry, Henry, wait, does your mother listen to Francis G from 503? And he was like, no, no, she does not. Do you, do you really think that your mother's gonna say, well, we were gonna have Christmas, but because Francis G from 503 said Christmas isn't real, we're not, we're gonna cancel. No, she will not. She does not listen to Francis G from 503. Does Francis G from 503 have powers? No, he does not. He does not have power. So I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to have Christmas, right? Yes. Yes, we will. And he starts to kind of settle down. Now, you need to know that this was a mess, literally. This kid was so covered with snot and sweat, and he doesn't understand physical boundaries, so he's all over me. <laughs> I am sick every day of my life. That's why they give me summers off, so it's so I don't die. I just am sick <laughs> all the time. This was a mess, but if you were looking from the outside and you knew me before I met Jesus, you might be tempted to think this was sort of a miracle if you saw the guy I used to be in this moment right now. Uh, but there's really nothing special about that. Every day, thousands of people help to calm down thousands of autistic kids. The real miracle was something that no one else could see but me because it was something that was happening on the inside. The real miracle was this. I was genuinely enjoying myself. I really, really enjoy this kid. There is a real life hidden right there in front of you, and you do not have to wait for death to find it. But you do have to die. 
A moment is coming when every single one of us will give up all power and control totally and completely. God, ironically, has given you some control over when this moment happens. You can wait, and it will come at a time you do not choose, like a thief in the night, and take it. Or you can lay it down right now. May each and every one of you lose what you cannot keep and find what you cannot lose. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks, Come on, give it up for Chris one more time.